welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're glad to have you all with us here this afternoon. We invite you to come to these live shows if you possibly can, or catch them later on UITV, YouTube, iTunes, and the IP website, which is international.uiowa.edu. Um, you can find information about upcoming shows and links to archived programs, and you can learn more about this space we tape in, which is Film Scene in Iowa City. And you can find out more about Film Scene at icfilmscene.org. Our topic tonight for World Canvas is gender and identity, and we hope to shed a little light on the complex cultural, personal, societal, and political aspects of terms we often hear used but may not fully understand, terms like gender and gender identity, sexuality and sexual orientation, LGBTQ, transgender, queer, transsexual. All of these words represent categories. They're used to sort out like types in the vast spectrum of uh, humanity. And they can refer to physical attributes, to sexual preferences, or to psychological affinities that may or may not match up with society's expectations of male and female traits and behaviors. Our guests in this first segment of World Canvas will explore the assumptions behind gender and identity and will help us understand how they affect uh, us in terms of how we feel about ourselves and also the ways that others see us. So I'm very pleased to introduce my guests in this segment we're calling Navigating Identity. Nicole Nisley is professor in the University of Iowa Department of Internal Medicine and co-director of the UIHC LGBTQ Clinic. Nicole, thank you so much for coming. My pleasure to be here. Thank you. Next to her is Georgina Dodge, the Chief Diversity Officer and Associate Vice President of the University of Iowa, also Title <coughs> IX Coordinator here at the UI. Welcome, Georgina. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And Sarah Riggs is our third guest. She's a Library Assistant at the University of Iowa Libraries, and we're very grateful to have you here, Sarah. Thanks. Thank you. So, uh, Nicole, as we mentioned, you're both a, a professor in internal medicine and you co-direct the LGBTQ clinic. So uh, could you give us an insight from a medical point of view as to how we should understand gender, sexuality, and identity? Sure. So uh, we can start with sex. So sex generally refers to what we call biological sex. So we learn in school about the X chromosome, the Y chromosome that define genetically uh, the male-female side of, of uh, humanity. Now, when someone is born, you know, that health provider or in, in some places a friend or someone that is attending birth will look at that baby and define that baby as a boy or a girl. That uh, definition will later become legal and that is a sex assigned at birth. So that person, that little baby or child would then be uh, defined or assigned on their birth certificate as, as a male or female. In some cases, uh, some due to medical or genetic conditions, you may not be able to tell if that baby is a boy or girl, and some tests need to be made. But at the end, they're defined or assigned as female or male. On the other hand, gender is that sense of self as, as a maleness or femaleness. Generally, about the age of two or so, that little baby will self-define as a boy or a girl. In most cases, that sex assigned at birth, male or female, matches that little, that little child's definition, self-definition of, of gender. And so uh, that person would then be a boy when they were assigned a male at, at birth. In some cases, that is, that is not a match. And so that person's gender identity uh, is different. And it may be opposite or it may be uh, different that initial definition. So that uh, is commonly 
known as a transgender person or a gender non-conforming person. Now, um, it turns out the research shows that it's very limited, but it shows that about 0.5% of the population identifies as gender non-conforming. And you can see people that identify as gender non-conforming in all populations from all cultures going back in history and current history. Um, it turns out that some people's identity as a gendered person may not necessarily fit on one of the two binary of male or female. Some people really identify their gender not necessarily fitting in there. It may not necessarily be in the middle, maybe more towards the female or more towards the male, but encompassing both of them. And some people identify then as gender nonconforming or gender queer or third gender, and you'll hear some more about that as, as the program goes. Um, I want to say a little bit of a, a word about sexual orientation as different in gender identity. And I think one of the ways that I thought would be easy for all of us to, to recognize or maybe identify that is to use maybe some famous personalities. So I'd like to um, point out uh, Portia uh, and Ellen DeGeneres and Portia de Rossi, which are a couple. So Ellen identifies as a um, cisgender woman who is also lesbian. And I'd like to talk a little bit about cisgender in just a minute. Her spouse identifies as also a cisgender woman who identifies as a lesbian or gay. Now, when you look at their, their expression or the way they dress, they carry themselves or their gender expression, one of them, Ellen, maybe expresses herself maybe in a more masculine way. And uh, as uh, Portia expresses herself in a more feminine way. And both of them have the same gender identity, which is cisgender woman. They have a similar sexual orientation, which is lesbian or gay. Now, if you look at a different person, Laverne Cox, which is um, one of the actresses in the show, Orange is the New Black, she, her sex assigned at birth is male. Her identity is a transgender woman. And so that's, um, so that is her identity as a person, so her gender and her, and her sex. Now, so then you can see the difference between sexual orientation, which is someone's attraction to another human being and the identity they call that. So as an example, when we created the Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, Queer and Questioning Clinic, our goal was to be able to create a, a space that was welcoming and safe for people that identify uh, in their gender as you know, a woman or a man, a cisgender woman, cisgender man, or transgender man or woman, or someone that identifies as a gender queer or a third gender. I would like to very briefly just describe what cis and trans mean. Those are Latin terms, and cis meaning on the same side, trans meaning on the opposite side. They're typically using like chemistry, biochemistry, or uh, um, so to define in ge uh, ge um, geometrically where the compounds are in the same side or the opposite side. So if one assigns sex at birth, say me, I was assigned female at birth and my identity is a woman, so I'm on the same side, so that means I'm a cisgender woman. So, Yeah, thank you for explaining that because I know that is a term that, that I've come across sometimes and I wasn't sure exactly uh, what was meant by it. So before we, we move to Georgina, um, we have mentioned that there is a clinic here at the yes. hospitals that you and Katie and Bork, whom we'll hear from later, um, started a few years ago. And, and tell us briefly why it was important, do you think, to, to set that up? 
Yes, so actually it was inspired by some of the University of Iowa students. Uh, we attended a lovely uh, week-long seminar called Trans Collaborations, and specifically I attended a particular day when they were talking about healthcare, and I heard the students share how difficult and challenging it may be felt to them to find a physician where they felt that they could talk about either their sexual orientation, their sexual behavior, their gender identity, and also to help with transition. So I, uh, some folks that uh, identify as transgender, in order for them to uh, transition to the gender that they identify with, they may need some help with hormones or surgery. And so we heard that that was very difficult to, to find physicians that had that safe space. And so we created the clinic with many colleagues. Uh, we have uh, some of our colleagues from pharmacy and counseling and surgery and dermatology, speech therapy, many other places that help uh, provide that care that is comprehensive to help people in their transition to the gender that they identify with. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you. Uh, so you've been listening to uh, Nicole Nisley. And uh, uh, next to her is Georgina Dodge, also uh, with our university here and university administration. And, um, you know, so you have many high-level tasks here at the university, chief diversity officer, associate vice president, and you also coordinate Title IX. Can you remind us all what Title IX is and what it means, particularly to people who might identify as LGBTQ? Certainly. Title IX focuses on gender equity. So you cannot be discriminated against on the basis of your gender. And that is however you define gender. As you can imagine, when Title IX first came around back in the 70s, that meant it was specifically aimed at protecting the rights of women on university campuses and within public forums. And now it's become a little bit more complicated, as Nicole has pointed out so well. And so we are going to be watching some of the laws conform um, to our expectations of what gender might be. In, in, your, in your role here on campus, uh, you're obviously very concerned about diversity, all kinds of diversity. What are, what are um, some of the... Uh, principal areas you're working on and you and others within the university community and the Iowa City community are working on to assure a safe environment mm -hmm. and um, uh, resources uh, available to, to anyone who feels need to either discuss their own, um, their own identification uh, issues or uh, the way they might be treated by others in the public. What are we doing as a university? Mm -hmm. We're doing a lot, and I just have to start out by saying this is such complicated work because often it's very emotional work. And identity is not something that's locked in, whether it be gender identity or other types of identity. It's, our, our identity is constantly evolving. And we have students who are coming here, and they have the opportunity to reinvent themselves. In other words, change the identity they may have carried the first 18 or so years of their lives and determine that they want to be someone else. And so that can bring about a lot of emotional distress as they try to grapple with that from, from their own perspective as well as from others. And the ways in which our identity get, get impacted by everything out there. I mean, we often don't think about that. We think that we define ourselves, you know. But, you know, the old saying is that no person is an island. And indeed, we get so impacted by what others think of us. 
and that we get impacted by things that we may not even accept, such as the stereotypes that others may hold of us. Those impact our identities as well. And so it's a really complicated, messy area. And it really does take a village to help people work through some of the issues that might arise. And so we do have resources on campus as well as um, in the community. Um, specifically for gender identity, there is a person within the Center for Diversity and Enrichment who works with students specifically. There is also the LGBT Resource Center as well as the LGBT Faculty and Staff Alliance which was came around which formed in 1990 I believe it may be the oldest such alliance in the country on a university campus um, we also do a great deal of programming and outreach um, as some of you have undoubtedly heard in 2013 we decided to do a little more aggressive outreach and so we included some questions on our admissions form um, that became um, quite a, it attracted a lot of national attention and in fact I actually have a phone message from another university that wants to talk with me about how we did that and what consequences we faced because um, you know this is still an evolving area and people are still afraid of what impact it may have on their institutions. Um, so one of the reasons that we did include a question asking if a person, if the incoming student um, affiliates with the LGBT community is so that we could let people know about resources. One of the things that we found in surveying our students is that they didn't know where to go. You know, and particularly for students who might be re-identifying themselves when they arrived here at the university. Um, so they did not have a group of people to call on, a group of colleagues. And so we, we occasionally send out emails with resources. Um, if we have new information about programs, we send that out to everyone who indicates on the form that they're affiliated with the LGBT community. And I do need to add, and I think it's important, that that information is protected information. Until such time as the federal government enacts the laws that need to be enacted to ensure that there is adequate protection for people who declare their gender identities or their sexual orientation, we need to make sure um, that we protect that information. And so we'll send information about scholarships, programming, other types of resources that are available on campus, um, and just encouraging messages as well. And I do want to mention one of the programs that we have on campus that Sarah is very involved in and that we're particularly proud of, and that is our Safe Zone initiative. And Safe Zone is a program that is designed to help everyone in the campus community develop the tools so that they can be an effective ally. There are two parts to Safe Zone, and the first part may be for those who are, don't feel prepared to identify themselves as an ally, but want to have some knowledge of the LGBT community. And so it's been a highly effective program. I brought the numbers with me. I think um, since the program became an initiative in 2010, we've trained 904 students, faculty, staff, and community members and approximately 330 of them are active Safe Zone members. Mm. Yeah, so we're very proud of that. Yeah, so help me understand, if someone comes to the training and they, they stick with it, um, becoming an ally means what? It means that you step up if you see something Absolutely. happening to someone else? Absolutely, you can even receive a placard that identifies your workspace as some place that's welcoming, in case, and particularly for young students who come to campus and may need someone to talk to, may need someone to connect them to a larger community or provide them with resources. Mm -hmm. 
Well, now that you have some experience with this admissions question, I'm, I'm interested to know whether you've been able to determine um, what proportion of students who, who might answer that question positively actually do give a, a, any sort of answer to it at all, I, not perhaps knowing how that information would be used or not wanting to share something with their parents who might look at the admissions form exactly. before it's mailed mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. And we do realize that that is an issue. Yeah. So we do have a very small percentage of students who have answered the question affirmatively. Yeah. You know, but as we figure with increased outreach and changing public perception, we expect that to continue growing. And we also recognize that some students who are checking yes may not identify themselves as LGBT, but want to be themselves allies. And so we think it's important to keep them in the loop and provide them with information. Wonderful, great. Well, thank you. So that's Georgina Dodge. And now we're going to go to Sarah Riggs at the far end. And uh, uh, Sarah, I know that in addition to what Georgina has said here, you've long been active in the LGBTQ uh, movement. And it, it's personally important to you. And you also uh, prepared a really wonderful commentary for the Press Citizen yesterday, many people may have read, um, called Moving Past Gender. And why is this issue so important to you? Um, well, I came out in 1991. And, and I came out as a lesbian then, and then eventually said, well, maybe I'm bisexual. And it wasn't until I started doing Safe Zone as an employee of the university that I was like, well, I'm just queer because there's not just two genders, and I'm not just attracted to only men and women. I'm, I'm just attracted to a person, period, you know. So then I just said queer. Um, there, was, there was a lot of activism on my part as far as marriage equality and of course Iowa is uh, one of the first states that became a state that allowed same-sex marriage um, but I think when when I do these safe zone trainings for the University of Iowa I, I start to see that gender identity and um, that is the, the place we need to start moving um, because it affects every single one of us, every single child that's born. And, and, and homophobia even doesn't even seem to always be homophobia. It's more a genderism, and it's hate against you not matching the gender that you're presenting. Or, um, so a lot of hate crimes, a lot of hate towards people can be more about their gender than about if they're gay or not. Have, have there been, I'll perhaps turn to you with your work at the clinic, uh, have you had patients who have had uh, gender violence uh, committed against them? So uh, there is a high prevalence of people that identify as gender nonconforming um, in, in shelters, as an mm -hmm. example, because their families um, no longer wish to associate with them. And that's a story that I find very sad that I heard many times in my, my work as a physician, is to recognize that because of that identity, um, you know, they have suffered neglect or violence or abandonment. Yeah. Um, and so there's also a high risk of suicide because of some of the barriers that Sarah is talking about, that people face sometimes by losing their loved ones and sometimes by just that continued uh, ex-microaggression, mm -hmm. such as getting a job, getting a place to live, or discrimination because one 
identifies uh, at a gender that does not match that sex assigned at birth. So Sarah, I know that you're also a mom. You have kids yes. in the school system. Okay. And um, among the things that you mentioned in the, the article you wrote were um, the need for restroom facilities from, from the youngest grades on up. Right, and I think that's citywide, right, yeah. or nationwide, you yeah. know, or worldwide even. Um, but I just joined the uh, equity committee for the school district, and I'm going to be working with Kingsley Botchway on some school district things mm -hmm. for equity for gender, especially. Mm -hmm. So hopefully we can move on all the buildings. Right. And hopefully the university also mm -hmm. moves on that. Well, I know there was good news this last week or so when Iowa City as a community was given a very high ranking yeah. uh, among cities nationally for, for um, uh, a welcoming environment for uh, uh, LGBTQ community. Um, and there is the Campus Pride Index, and at the University of Iowa, we have a 4.5 star rating out of 5 possible. So we've done fairly well. Yeah. And we know there's always room for improvement, but we are certainly striving to do better. And um, the point that Sarah was just talking about, about having accessible restroom facilities, that's something we've had a lot of conversation about. And what's important to realize is that even though we focus on one particular identity, such as gender, when we do good things for one group, it's going to help everybody. And that's what we have to keep in the back of our minds. And even as we've looked at developing restroom facilities that, that are gender neutral, we're finding that it's very helpful for um, someone who has a disability who wants someone else who may not be of their same sex or gender to accompany them into the restroom to help them. Mm -hmm. So we understand that, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats, so to mm -hmm. speak. Mm -hmm. Yes. So the, the University of Iowa has been recognized as a leader in the Health Equality Index, which mm -hmm. is similar to what Georgina recognized as a leader in LGBTQ health. Uh, as the Iowa River Landing Facility was created, that was one of the dialogues that we had with our leaders and co colleagues is, uh, about restrooms. And so the restrooms at, uh, at uh, Iowa River Landing are designated as restrooms. They are all gender in inclusive. Yes, wow, wow, terrific. Uh, any concluding remarks you'd like to make? Um, maybe the, the one thing you would like uh, to see happen in the next year, the next two years, is there one thing uh, that could make a great difference? Well, mine is kind of big and idealistic, to be quite <laughs> honest with you. I just wish we would let people embrace their identities and understand that identities are so fluid and that we move amongst them and between them. And if we could just learn to accept people for who they are at a particular moment in time, it would be a much better world. Yeah. Not sure we, we could end in <laughs> any better place than that. That sounds great. So, well, well, thank you, Sarah Riggs and Georgina Dodge and Nicole Nisley. Thank you so much for joining us for this uh, first part of a three-part series on gender and identity. This is World Canvas. We hope you can join us for the next segment where we'll be talking to a couple in, of individuals about their own personal stories navigating their uh, identity. So uh, thank you for being with us for this first uh, program. All World Canvas programs are available on YouTube, iTunes, UITV, and the International Programs website website, international.uiowa.edu, and you can learn more about Film Scene at icfilmscene.org. So I'm Joan Karen for International Programs. Thanks very much, and we'll see you next time. Good night.
Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from Film Scene in downtown Iowa City. This is part two of a three-part series on gender and identity, and we thank you for joining us. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you that you're invited to come to the live shows or to catch them later on UITV, YouTube, iTunes, or the IP website, which is international.uiowa.edu. And you can learn more about Film Scene at icfilmscene.org. In this uh, second part of our uh, series on gender and identity, we're going to be talking to uh, two individuals here of basically about how they navigate identity in um, the different environments in their lives, uh, both in our home culture here and when traveling elsewhere. I think that for most of us, we sort of present ourselves in different ways based upon you know, the, the uh, event we may be attending. You, know, you behave a little bit differently if you go to a funeral than if you're tailgating at a, at a Hawkeye game. And so presenting oneself in different ways at different times is not really unusual for any of us. But the question of navigating within and across cultures uh, when one's sexual orientation or gender identity is not mainstream uh, can be much more challenging. And, uh, and I'm really grateful to have these two uh, good guests with us in this session. Uh, segment. Just next to me is Eric Mortensen, who's an undergraduate student in the University of Iowa College of Engineering. Thanks, Eric, Thanks for being for here. Thanks for having me, Joan. Pleasure. And uh, next to Eric is Jamie Nevins. Thank you for coming, Jamie. Uh, Jamie is an Iowa City business owner. Uh, the, the business is Back Together Massage. So thanks for being here. Um, so Eric, I just want to talk to you first about you know who you are, where you're from, and um, one of the reasons we've got you on the show is that I know you have taken advantage of study abroad, yes. and you're interested in working abroad. And um, so, uh, where are you from? Yeah, so let's get the basics out on the table first, <laughs> I guess. Um, I'm from small town Illinois, um, a little town about an hour and a half outside of Chicago. The name of it is small town. Small town. No. Oh my gosh, how about <laughs> it's that? It's actually Belvedere. Belvedere. Oh. <laughs> so um, yeah. Uh, Pretty small town, came to the University of Iowa, not really sure what to expect, um, and it just hit me like a wall of bricks. Holy cow, Iowa City is such a great place. Um, like uh, Georgina mentioned in the last segment that we had, I was really able to start identifying myself as I truly wanted to and not necessarily as I had been identified throughout my previous 18 years. Um, so my first year happened and it was great. I was kind of caught up in the freshman flurry of things. Um, and then I went abroad to Sweden. And if you consider Iowa City as a great place to be um, for <laughs> identity and openness, Sweden is just times 100. Um, it was truly there where I found my village, actually, to help me come to, not to terms, because I'm very proud of who I am, but to, to assist me in that process. It's a very difficult process for everybody to identify who they are. Um, I had a really good friend, um, her name's Susie from France, and she was the one who really got down to my core, and she said, Eric, we know you're there. You don't need to put on a show for us. You can be whoever you want to be. And that really struck a chord from, uh, for me personally. And so uh, from that moment on, I was really going down towards the right path of identifying and being honest with myself about who I was. So I actually ended up coming out um, Gosh, it's 18 months ago now at this point. Um, so I've really just been surrounded by a bunch of supportive friends, family, um, across the board. A lot of people are just there in my corner cheering for me. And I feel like I might be the exception to that. I, I feel like my support system is very good. But in other cases, I know that other people aren't as privileged to have 
people who love and care for them genuinely and who support them regardless of whatever their label or identity is. Because um, in my opinion, honestly, label and identity is something for yourself. It shouldn't be anything else that anybody else is concerned with. Uh, but you had mentioned that I, I do want to have a, an international uh, career and lifestyle. And so the, the truth about that is that you do have to be very well aware of the society and the civilization that you're in and how your identity plays with that. Um, for example, I'll be going to Cuba in about uh, 15 days now. I'm really excited. Um, but for a long time, Cuba has been uh, very homophobic, I would want to say. In the past 10 years or so, things have started to lighten up. Uh, but that's just something that you have to be very well aware of, regardless of wherever you are. I know I was also considering a program in India, uh, the India Winter Program offered by the Study Abroad Office. And uh, India is not a very safe place. It's not a safe zone, for sure. Um, but, but that's just something that I'll have to be well aware of through my um, undergraduate and graduate career as a civil engineer, and then onward on through the rest of my life as a international engineer and as a global citizen. Wow. Uh, did you have any difficulty with your parents when you came out? Was that a surprise for them um, or no? Yeah, my dad was completely caught off guard, which surprises me. Um, but uh, both my mom and my dad, and even my sister, who I consider my best friend, we're very close-knit, very supportive. Um, I, really, I really didn't receive any negative feedback, all very supportive and loving, which yeah. is what I would hope that every single person had mm -hmm. access to. Mm -hmm. so, so you said that Sweden is like Iowa City times 100. Yes. What, <laughs> what kinds of things would you say uh, just sort of you know, blew your mind when you were there? With the specific context of mm -hmm. gender identity mm -hmm. equality, um, for one, the gender neutral bathrooms over there, everything is neutral. And it's really weird to look into, if you have a chance, look into the Swedish language. Um, they're actually introducing a neutral um, he and her. So oh, it's, really? there's a his, there's a her, and then it, it's essentially equivalent to the English it, but it's not it. It's just neutral. Mm -hmm. No mm -hmm. gender identified mm -hmm. to it. And I thought that was very interesting right off when I was in my basic Swedish right. class while I was over there. Um, but I think the most interesting thing to me, coming from uh, a sheltered, closeted um, society, or not society, but way of living, I guess, into Sweden, was that nobody, I mean, of course people care for you, everyone cares for you, whoever you consider your close friends, but nobody really was impacted that significantly, significantly enough to have a negative reaction to you or cut you out of their lives. I mean, right. they were willing to just open arms, say, well, mm -hmm. great. great. <laughs> yeah, it would, like, it would be like saying, my eyes are blue. Yeah. It's yeah. just straight up. Wow, how about that? Mm -hmm. that's, that's really great. And I know that the Study Abroad Office has uh, you know, a helpline. If you had run into trouble anywhere, or if you were to run into any problems when you're in Cuba or elsewhere. Oh, of course. Uh, you know, it's obviously, it's important to the university and to study abroad to make sure the students are safe and feel yeah, the that they have the Study Abroad Office actually has a 24-hour emergency call line. So oh, if yeah. you're anywhere in the world at any time, if something happens to make mm -hmm. you feel uncomfortable, LGBTQT or anything else, there's yeah. somebody there willing to help. Yeah. yeah. 
Great. Well, before we move on to Jamie, I just wanted to ask, are you involved in any of the campus um, uh, gay organizations or um, the resource groups? So I'm actually not. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm your stereotypical engineer who's um, taking 19 credit hours. And so <laughs> it's great. <laughs> it keeps me really busy. And then on top of that, um, activities with my fraternity, Dance Marathon, and a few other organizations mm -hmm. uh, really limit my free time to do anything oh, else. Sure. Yeah. May, may I just ask about the fraternity connection? Did you ever feel any kind of awkwardness well, within your fraternity? Well, yeah, there is always that connotation, well, A, fraternities and sororities drink too much, B, the whole thing with hazing, and C, being very homophobic. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing that I've really enjoyed about coming out to my fraternity brothers is that I'm still Eric. I'm mm -hmm. still their vice president. Mm -hmm. I'm still the crazy guy who likes to have fun but also mm -hmm. knows how to get stuff taken care of just mm -hmm. because I have identified myself as a gay man mm -hmm. I haven't changed in their eyes at all Great. or at least what they've expressed Great. to me Great. yeah glad to hear it wow that's that's wonderful well thank you mm -hmm. and uh, and let's move down the line now to talk to you uh, Jamie Nevins so uh, we hadn't met before today except by email <laughs> pleasure to meet you and um, uh, you told me that you identify as queer both in terms of sexual orientation and um, gender identity. Can you tell me what that means to you in, in your life? Yeah, and Nicole talked about it a little bit earlier mm -hmm. um, in the first segment, um, right? And so, um, and actually, uh, so did Sarah as well, that just basically, you know, sexuality. Um, and that was actually the first thing that came for me um, was at the time, right, like identify, like realizing that I was also attracted to girls. Um, but then, um, but by, I wore for a while, it, but it didn't feel right. Um, and so then when I heard the term queer, that, that was what was mine. Um, and then in the past few years, um, sort of, um, not necessarily, like basically realizing that for me, um, woman, <coughs> you know, uh, wasn't my term. So as far as gender, um, yeah, and like I, you know, Nicole kind of talked about um, how we're assigned a sex at birth and then with that is attached a gender and, you know, all the things that like, you know, this baby has a penis, therefore it needs blue puppies. Mm -hmm. You know, like the yeah. things that we say, yeah. Yeah. you know, this baby has a vulva on the outside, that's what I see when I first look at it, so it needs pink kitties, you know, like, we kind of make it all up. Yeah, and have you, so you've sort of felt yourself evolving through your life too? I mean, when was it that you, that you felt a dissonance between this, this, the gender that you had been assigned and the way you felt really inside? Right. Well, I mean, and so mine is not the narrative that is sort of most talked about. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, and, and similar um, in a way that they taught the sort of conversation around sexuality, right? Like, and it's a little more diverse now where people are talking about their sexuality, like who they sleep with, um, where it's like, you know, there's the people that are like, I knew when I was two years old that I was assigned a woman and I'm, you know, going to sleep with women. Like, that, that wasn't for me. That was not how my gender was. Mm -hmm. um, I, mm, I think it was in the early 2000s. I lived in Florida. Um, and so, right, ag again, and Georgina kind of talked about this, when you're away from what you knew as like this was your sort of insular wherever you grew up um, and you are sort of able to not have all the preconceived notions that people put on you um, you can you can feel 
out where you are a little bit better. Um, and so when I was in Florida, I started to grow the beard. Like, it started to come in a little more. I'd always had a couple of whiskers or whatever. But So that was um, the first time that I started to grow my beard. For me, that wasn't a piece of my gender. For 10 years, I identified as a woman with a beard. Like, no question. Like, not, oh, I might be this. Um, but then a couple years ago, like I said, just sort of all of a sudden, I mean, and I, it wasn't all of a sudden. It was sort of a shift for me. Um, but one day I kind of had had to look at the piece that it's like these words are not they're not mine anymore I didn't ever identify as a man I knew that right and so as somebody who really doesn't like labels um, there's definitely a comfort in having a label mm -hmm. and I didn't have one so that was scary it was horrible for me so what about your close circle? What about your family? What about friends? Did, did you have difficulties in those relationships? Um, it I mean, it depends, right? Like, it depends on the community. Um, I, you know, like, you have a certain um, assumption, I think, of a lot of times where people, I mean, like, I mean, and this is kind of across the board, and I think they're getting a lot better at it, um, but the LGBTQ community that labels itself as such is not always welcoming to, um, you know, like, they have a tendency to silence bi voices. They mm -hmm. definitely have a tendency to uh, silence trans voices, queer people of color, like, not looked at, you know, um, and so, so something that you would think would be uh, inclusive isn't always in, in the ways you might hope for. Um, for. As far as for my community, I found um, for me personally, um, it, was, it was more, like I said, I thought it was going to look a certain way, mm -hmm. but then it was like my anarchist activist friends and you know union organizers and artists and just mm -hmm. all the funky people mm -hmm. that, people just that get it, you know? People that get the, the social justice and like, like that, feel, it's important to have a community that you have shared experience with. Um, you know, it's nice to have somebody to have a conversation with about how to wear a binder the right way, mm -hmm. um, or like what their experience was. But um, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to overlap and connect in all the ways that nourishes a person. Yeah. Well, I, I know that you said that you have recently attended a conference, the Trans yes, Spectrum Conference. Yes, it was awesome. Yeah. So tell me something about what happened there. Um, it was gr it was great. It was like two days, and um, it started with um, I think the the organization was Gender Spectrum, and it was out of the Bay Area. Um, and I really liked one of the things that he talked about right on the front end um, was uh, you know kind of he talked about gender and kind of defining and you know cis versus trans and um, and um, he said that the term that they used there was gender expansive. And I really like that because it wasn't um, it wasn't just including trans people. It was just talking about um, how people who don't fit with the I have a penis, I am a boy, blue puppies, you know, like and so for example, um, the difference between a cisgender boy that likes to wear dresses and and nail polish and things that we have arbitrarily said are for girls. I mean, like look at Scotland. You know, yeah. <laughs> men wear kilts. Like, it's just all, we said this is the thing that should be. Um, and so, you know, and then also um, the, the stereotype of, you know, here is a cisgender girl and she likes to play baseball. Oh, that one's going to be gay when she grows up. You know, like, right. the, 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 um, 
the different things that we put on people. Mm -hmm. um, and then also, right, the, the um, what comes with that, right? So, you know, a tomboy doesn't get the same kind of treatment, right, right that a boy who likes to wear dresses gets. Mm -hmm. That's a, I mean, vast difference in accepting, like, and really violence. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, and as far as, I mean, and kind of, I was talking about the queer um, community doesn't see people of color a lot of times. Um, specifically, I remember hearing a statistic, and it was like, um, I want to say, oh, I wrote it down. I think it was 72% um, of the hate, like, in within the LGBT community, but the hate homicide, like, hate crime homicide murders, 72% um, were trans women, hmm. right? And then... Um, I think it was 67% of, of the total was trans women of color, right? So the queer community likes to do this thing where they say, oh, you know, like, we're persecuted, but, well, you're kind of using the statistic, but you're not looking at, like, this huge piece. Um, so, yeah, that was one of the things. And I kind of, I was aware of the, the trans women of color piece of it. Um, from an experience I had had visiting my sister um, in DC, I think last year, and I was very worried because there had been many trans um, assaults on trans women, um, violence. There was one woman that was stabbed like 40 times, you know, like it was very many in a very short period, and so I was very concerned going. And then, I, you know, there was kind of the standard like, you know, but, um, but I didn't really experience anything like that. And, I read an article while I was there, and it was, you know, that was when I realized it's pretty much trans women of color that get the, the most violence from our mm -hmm. society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, so how, uh, what, what kinds of reactions, if I may ask, have yeah. you gotten from people who, who don't know what to make of you, somebody you, right. you meet for the first time? Well, and to tie this back to my family a little bit, I know that at one point my mom um, had said, and I'm actually not out to my parents, um, somebody had once told me just in the conversation, and it was just perfect. It, um, she had said, someone had told her that um, being queer is deciding whether you have the energy to explain, mm -hmm. right? And so my mom, I, I don't have the energy to explain it to my kids, <laughs> obviously, right? I might have to, but it's fine. Um, it'll come when it comes. We'll burn that bridge when we get there. Yeah, yeah right? Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... So, um, let's see, where was I? Oh, so my mom, um, you know, she knows that I have the beard, right? Like that, people perceive me how they're going to perceive me. They, I mean, and yeah, it depends, um, safety and whatever. But so for my mom, she had said, you know, I just, I just worry. I just worry that you, you know, you're closing doors for yourself. You know, she's offered to pay for electrolysis. She's offered to pay for laser surgery. I've, like I said, I've had my beard for over 10 years. Um, and I have very early memories of her, like, ripping hers out in the mirror, right, um, and doing many different things. Um, the, the piece, though, um, for me, as far as, and, and I had a lot of struggle when I initially started to grow it, but at whatever point, right, I started to realize that I could tell a lot about a person like that from the moment they light eyes on me, um, you know, and so I, I really kind of figured out that it was a, garbage filter, a poo filter. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. um, so, so yeah, like, I mean, there's, I think everything that you would imagine, yeah. you know, um, 
sometimes there's just the like the eye that hangs a second longer. My favorite, my favorite, favorite responses are from kids because they don't have so much baggage. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and what They're has a kid said? I mean, what? Oh, so many things. Um, I was a nanny for a long time, and one of my favorite, Raya, um, one of the little girls that I took care of, uh, she was going to Montessori at the time, and I had been her nanny since she was like 18 months, you know? And so I remember the mom, Ritu, had told me that uh, she had come home from school um, and was, you know, t basically she told her that she had had, like, she'd had an argument on the playground because somebody had said, you know, women don't have beards. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So, that, I mean, like, and then she had another friend. I, a lot of times, a lot of kids, because, right, again, we've told them, like, this is what this is. You know, if you're a girl, you should like princesses. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you're a boy, you should like frogs or whatever, frogs, you know? Yeah. Right, right, exactly. Um, and so, um, there, you know, the one I get a lot, a lot, a lot um, is, are you a boy or a girl, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, my favorite responses well what do you think and you know it's interesting because then they kind of play it out in their head you know usually they'll say one or the other and then um and then why yeah. you know so just letting them find their little whatever wow i exist wow. in this world <laughs> blows all the things <laughs> <laughs> well so to just kind of wrap up this segment for both of you um, what advice would you have um, for somebody who's sort of struggling with um, maybe first self-identification and then after that being more open in the world? What, uh, is there a piece of advice you could give to anybody who's struggling with that? Maybe first. I think the, the time of my life where I had the largest struggle was earlier on and especially through middle and high school. And I've heard a saying that's gained a lot of popularity in mass uh, media recently, but it's uh, the saying that it gets better. <laughs> I mean, would you agree, Jamie? I it, would not. No? No, <laughs> no I would not. Well, <laughs> well if, in my... For some people it does. For some yeah. people it does, and uh, for me it, it definitely has gotten better. And I think the reason it gets better is because you're able to love yourself. You're able to love others once you're able to love yourself. So, mm -hmm. love yourself. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. And so, what, what advice yeah, would you have? Um, I think, it's okay, we yeah. all can have our different experiences, yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, and that was going to be the, one of the first things that I said is do what you need to do to feel safe and healthy, right, and balancing those pieces, um, you know, whether it's gender identity or sexuality or any of that. Um, as far as it gets better, I think it's really important for, um, right, because we can't, we can't protect our children. We can't, you know, um, getting the tools, you know, like things that you can use to help you. Um, and again, finding the places where you're safe. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't get better for everybody, but mm -hmm. we can sometimes find ways of coping with the things that are hard. Yeah, great. Wow, I'm so grateful to both of you for being on with us, Eric Mortensen and Jamie Nevins. Thank you so much, both of you. And um, so unfortunately, we're at the uh, end of this segment, but I, I'd like to remind all of you that you're watching World Canvas, and this was the second part of a three-part series. Uh, in this next uh, section, we're going to be looking at human rights and uh, gender and identity. And uh, so World Canvas programming is available on YouTube, iTunes, UITV, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiwa.edu. Uh, if you want to learn more about Film Scene, you can uh, find them on the web at icfilmscene.org. And uh, I'm Joan Kerr. Thanks very much for being here tonight, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. 
Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. We're coming to you from Film Scene in downtown Iowa City, and we're happy to have you join us for this third part in a three-part series on gender and identity. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen this program before, we invite you to join us here in Film Scene for the live production, or you can catch these programs later on UITV, YouTube, or iTunes. Information about upcoming shows as well as links to archived programs can be found at international.uiowa.edu. And you can learn more about Film Scene at icfilmscene.org. The focus of this final segment of our three-part series on gender and identity is human rights. There's a lot to talk about here, and I'm very excited to have these three guests with us uh, on stage. Uh, Katie Imborek is just next to me, and she's an assistant professor in the University of Iowa Department of Family Medicine, also co-director of the UIHC's LGBTQ Clinic. So welcome, Katie. Thank you, John. Thank you. And uh, next to Katie is Anirudha Dutta, assistant professor in the UI Department of Gender, Women's, and Sexuality Studies. And thank you, Ani, for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Yes. And uh, at the far end is Philip Lutkendorf, a professor in the University of Iowa Department of Asian and Slavic Languages and Literatures. And great to have you here, Philip. Thanks. Nice to be with you again, John. Thank you. So the overarching question I'd like to tackle in this segment is how does gender impact human rights and the rights of citizens both here in the U.S. and abroad? And uh, I think I'm going to turn first to Katie for some U.S. perspectives here. Um, we've already mentioned that you're involved with the uh, LGBTQ clinic. Mm -hmm. You teach here. What issues do your patients deal with related to human rights or what we might think of as citizens' rights? Right, sure. So. Um, so we, we do live in a really great state, um, and since 2007, the state of Iowa uh, has protected gender identity in things like employment, non-discrimination, and in housing, and, um, and in public accommodations. But as we all know, sometimes things that are actually in law don't necessarily be put into practice in quite that same way. Um, so Dr. Nisley and myself have you know, sort of traded stories about some of these different things that have come up. And as she mentioned in the first segment, we do have a really wonderful partnership with some folks over in the College of Law. Professor Lynn Sandler has done some amazing things. They've created a Rainbow Health Clinic, which specifically um, has worked with and for some of our transgender patients. Um, and one of the things that has come out of that has been a guide to changing legal, legal gender identity documents in the state of Iowa. And it's been a really... Um, great resource for a lot of our patients and sort of helping them tackle one of the barriers that they do find is that oftentimes the name that they prefer or the gender that they identify with doesn't necessarily match that that's on their birth certificate, their driver's license, their passport um, that is in there, you know, listed on their insurance card. So that's just one of the things that, that, that we have been able to kind of help with. Many times they need a signed letter from a physician that may need to be notarized and things like that. So we do as much as we can to help them where we can do that and, and also to give them that resource. Um, and as I mentioned before about things like non-discrimination laws, sometimes those are not put into practice. Sometimes we do have patients who come and, and, and say, you know, I was fired from my job. I, I have been to multiple interviews and I can't get a job. And oftentimes the, the assumption um, is, is it's because of, of things like that person's gender expression, their gender identity, um, and maybe they didn't get the job for other reasons or they were fired for other reasons. 
but that that's sort of how how it's sort of felt by um, by that patient. Um, and so, of course, without employment, you don't have really great access to health insurance. Um, and so uh, we know that, that folks who identify as transgender or gender nonconforming um, don't always have great access to health care, and that could be one of the reasons why. Mm -hmm. So those are just, just some of the few day-to-day um, -day things that our trans patients have to deal with. And I think it's important for us to kind of recognize our privilege as cisgender folks that we can go and feel like, you know, we have to go to the bathroom and we know that we're going to find one that matches our gender and, um, and that we can feel pretty secure that we're not going to be fired from our job for trying to identify in a way that resonates with who we are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. It, it must be, uh, I mean, sometimes these stories have to be heartbreaking. They are. I, I, um, but I'd have to say that, you know, every Tuesday night when I leave the LGBTQ clinic, I definitely don't feel heartbroken. I feel empowered by the stories of resilience that I hear. Um, and, and these, these patients have, have, you know, sometimes do come with very tragic stories of, you know, loss of their friends or loss of their family. Um, but they often have such resilience to sort of make it through and sometimes just to get to our doors. They have, they have really had to show such courage and, um, and such, you know, dedication uh, that, that it's always much more heartwarming than it is heartbreaking. You know, there was a story, I don't know how many people may have read this, but a few weeks ago there was a young woman who died at an early age, I think 29, in Boise, Idaho, and she had worked, I think, in a bank in Boise, if either of you read this story, any of you did. Um, uh, in any case, um, she was known to her friends, people in Boise, as a young woman named Jennifer, and uh, anyway, she, she died very suddenly, unexpectedly, and um, when friends attended the funeral, an open casket funeral, they saw her in a way they'd never seen her before, hair cut short, dressed as a young man, and uh, the, the name on the uh, uh, program that was handed out by the family was the birth name. Uh, this young woman had been born a male, and uh, the, the father, uh, I would imagine, against the wishes of this uh, young woman, saw her as the boy who had been born all those years before. And, um, and in the article, there was an exp explanation that if, if a person um, does identify with a different gender, it's very important to get this down in a document somewhere that will uh, have to be observed upon your, upon your death. If you, you know, it's very sad for me to hear mm -hmm. this story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah and, yeah. and it's things like that where, where you know, there's just so many things that could happen on a day-by-day -day basis that really trans folks or, or, or folks who are gender nonconforming have to go to those extra steps, mm -hmm. have to hire the lawyer, have to run around and find their birth certificate from the state that they were born and, and, and sort of go through all of these processes just to protect something as simple as you would think yeah. that it would be to be able to, you know, have your final wishes be carried out. Yeah. Well, uh, so... 
Thank you, Katie. And yeah. I, I think now I'd like to move down to Philip and to Ani and talk a little bit about uh, a different culture, India, uh, an interesting uh, Supreme Court ruling from some months ago recognizing uh, officially a third gender. And uh, Ani can fill us in on what this ruling was all about and, and the background to it. Thank you, Joan. Um, so this ruling, the Supreme Court, it's actually the NASA judgment. It was a judgment in response to a petition filed by the National Legal Services Authority, or NALSA. And this ruling did kind of expand upon uh, legal options for identifying other than male and female, which had already been available previously. So it was not an entirely new development. But what was perhaps more innovative about the ruling in itself was that it, for the first time, on the level of the state or the law, it recognized some degree of self-determination of gender. And it said that people should be able to, and, it's, uh, and these are, this is in the directives at the end of the judgment, it said that people should be able to choose their gender identity as male, female, or other, irrespective of the sex assigned at birth, and whether or not they've undergone any transitional procedures, such as surgery or hormones. Mm -hmm. So that was the truly, I think, radical possibility of the judgment, which was kind of reductively portrayed in a lot of the both Indian national media coverage and the international uh, coverage, which basically focused on uh, it giving me creating a third gender identity, which actually already existed in, for instance, the Indian election voter ID card process. There was already another category that had been introduced. In the passport, there had been previously in 2005, a similar kind of third gender category had been introduced. So there have been these administrative measures happening for a while now. So the Supreme Court judgment was not entirely unique or the first step. And in other neighboring South Asian countries like Nepal and Bangladesh, there also have been similar separate gender or third gender categories that have been proposed and to some degree implemented. Although implementation is a different story, I won't be able to go into the details of that. Like uh, it's one thing creating a legal option and then actually getting it procedurally implemented on the level of identity cards or um, you know uh, census enumeration or whatever is a different story. So that's one way in the in which the third, the third gender judgment was kind of reductively portrayed. Um, it also has some problems of its own. It's, in some respects, it's not entirely, uh, it's clear in terms of what are the procedures that one might have to follow to legally declare identification. So in the directives, it says that transitional procedures should not be required. In fact, it says that it's a, it's a violation of one's fundamental rights if transitional procedures are required for self uh, for gender self-determination. But in other parts, it seems to make the identification process contingent on psycholog psychological testing or some kind of demonstration of intent to transition. You know, so that kind of uh, seems to limit its potential in other places. So it's a little bit contradictory. It also seems to focus more on trans feminine people, particularly trans women and hijras, uh, who have been culturally usually recognized as a separate or a third gender. Um, so there has been some controversy uh, after the judgment regarding whether transmasculine spectrum people are really, uh, you know, should, are affected by the judgment, whether they also fall into the purview of the judgment, which is regrettable. Mm -hmm. But uh, that, so that, in some ways, it's, it's still a kind of story that's being worked out. Mm -hmm. But it does set certain important precedents in terms of, you know, uh, setting into motion this uh, idea of self-determination of uh, gender into legal procedure, how that can work in terms of legal procedure. Um, and you know, there is also a larger kind of background to this culturally, historically, of course. So India has had a long history of uh, particularly 
visible trans feminine communities, that is communities of uh, people who are assigned male at birth, but uh, or sometimes rarely intersex at birth, and who identify in some ways as feminine, sometimes as women, sometimes as a separate gender, but some degree of feminine self-identification. And often culturally or historically, these have been uh, kind of accorded the, the space of a separate or a third gender. So that is itself a complicated term because there are people who might just uh, wish to identify as the quote-unquote opposite gender, uh, which is why it's important to have gender self-determination and not to impose a kind of third gender category on everyone because not everyone might identify as a separate gender. So personally, I am femme, genderqueer, um, and I am, you know, I'm also Koti, which is a, a community of trans-feminine persons closely related to the hijra community. So a lot of Kotis become hijras, which is a more kind of organized subculture and uh, with its certain relig uh, specific religio-cultural norms and professions. So uh, I am fine with, you know, a separate gender or third gender, uh, you know, identity, but a lot of people in my community uh, are not, you know, they, were, they would either identify, you know, as female or sometimes even male, so because these are trans feminine spectrum, you know, so. Um, and the other thing in India is that, like, uh, the contrast between trans and hijra and koti activism in India and trans activism in the US, it's really very interesting because it demonstrates the way in which gender is, of course, about self identification, but it's also about social grids of intelligibility. So to explain that a little more, it's about what are the categories that are available to you to understand your own experiences and um, you know, feelings. So if you culturally have a separate gender category available, many more people are amenable to identify with that if there is no, like as opposed to a context where there is no such category available, right? So which is why in, the, in India, there has, it's been far more common for trans people, I think, to claim a separate gendered category, you know, uh, than it has been in the US where I think in many ways non-binary people remain relatively uh, marginalized uh, part of the trans community, which is itself also marginalized within the larger LGBTIQ community. So uh, this scenario is in many ways reversed in India, yeah. where a kind of separate gender identification is much more common. And also in many ways uh, in India, these trans, especially these trans feminine spectrum communities that I've been talking about, um, they also blur a lot of the kind of ways in which we think of gender in the US. So even within LGBT communities in the US, for instance, the cis versus trans divide. You know, so uh, Koti trans feminine spectrum communities have historically and today consisted of people whom in the US might be identified as feminine homosexual males or, or feminine gay men and also trans women and also like, you know, what we might call here drag queens or cross dressers. And so it's a whole spectrum, but it kind of coalesces into a singular community. You know, and there are subcategories like Bheli Kotis are Kotis who dress more consistently in feminine uh, attire. Kodi Kotis are Kotis who might be more akin to feminine gay men. Something. So there are all these kind of finer gradations, but it forms a kind of community of its own. You know, yeah. and similarly, and Hijras and Kotis are also overlapping. So there are like divisions among Hijras as well, like Aqua Hijras, Nirvan Hijras, depending on what kind of physical trans transition you might have done or not done. Yeah. So I think it's really important to remember that. It's like really a lot about the kind of cultural context that you grew up in and what are, what are the kind of uh, categories and terms available to you and how are they gendered. Like mm -hmm. even in looking at US history, you can see this. It's not just about India. So like, you know, um, pink went from being a relatively masculine color to a feminine color, you know, over the late 19th to the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. Then in the late 19th century in the US and UK, there were uh, subcultures of feminine homosexual male assigned 
people who in some ways they were the kind of forerunners of gay men today, but also identified as a separate gender in some cases, like the Yunnanists. You know, but these uh, kind of uh, categories have shifted. You know, and in the US, LGB uh, have defi become defined in terms of sexual orientation, become more gender normative, and more regionally distinguished from transgender. Whereas in India, this, is, this has not happened, and there are other ways of thinking about and categorizing gender and sexuality. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, well, let me draw Philip into this as well. You uh, teach Hindi and um, modern Indian history and so on, and you also teach these great epic tales uh, with um, uh, characters that every Indian child grows up knowing something about. Um, what has been the understanding over the long, long period of time of gender fluidity that might be um, related through these tales? Yeah, well, uh, kind of building on something that Ani said, I mean, I think... Um, to some extent, people's ability to imagine different possibilities of gender depends upon the kind of stories that they've heard. And I, I'm the, the most consistent thing in my uh, study of India, from ancient epics to modern-day Bollywood epics, um, has really been a fascination with storytelling and with the abundance of storytelling in India and the, and the possibilities that it presents. And you do find a fair amount of stories, um, both in classical literature and in folklore, that, that question gender, that question ideas of gender. You have characters who change who are transgender. In the great um, epic Mahabharata, which is a, you know, one of the foundational uh, Sanskrit epic traditions, um, you have a, a, a woman who becomes a man who becomes in order to play a, a role in the war and become a warrior on the battlefield and she she literally transitions um, and it, it's it's a it's a famous story very well known and you also have one of the main heroes of that epic who is a super macho guy who becomes it's not entirely clear what Arjuna becomes Ani, right? I mean, he, be, he, he becomes um, neuter, but feminine attired and feminine manner, mannerisms and becomes a dancing teacher to a bunch, a bunch of princesses for a year. Um, and it's um, almost a kind of tour de force performance uh, of sort of the woman inside him uh, being allowed to manifest as part of this, this heroic personality who's actually one of the most admired figures in the epic. But it's not, I mean, there, there are comical aspects to it, but it's not generally played for laughs. It's a, it's a kind of um, a serious transformation. And, and um, so anyway, that, 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 that's, that's one, uh, those are some, a couple of examples. And then, of course, in, in Hindu religious tradition, you have the notion of uh, androgyny of divinity. So Shiva, for example, one of the most uh, revered and beloved gods in Hinduism, regularly appears in a hermaphroditic form where, where he's half woman and half male. And so again, they're, they're, I mean, these are models, and in their own way, they can reinforce the dyadic notion of either or yeah. gender, but they can also be subjected to other, and have been, to other interpretations that are, involve more fluidity. I know during the uh, period of the British colonial empire, yeah. um, I would imagine that the British understanding of gender um, conflicted in some way with um, some of the uh, Hindu expressions. 
Yeah, and of course, when you say British, you have to you really have to say Victorian British. Yeah, because yeah. we're talking about a very particular period right. of uptightness, mm -hmm. so to say. Mm -hmm. um, and um, there was a tendency in discourse in the colonial discourse in India to gender the entire operation. India was feminine, Britain was masculine. Uh, Indians were effeminized as the subject conquered people uh, to manly British Christian virile culture. Yeah. Uh, and this is a kind of pervasive discourse that you find in a lot of colonial um, expressions, uh, cultural expressions. And of course, Indians reacted to that in their own way. There was a, there was a, a, a tendency for Indian men to want to fight this, reject this, reassert their masculinity in a kind of hyper-masculine way. So that, that led to a kind of um, uh, hardening, uh, reifying of, of gender categories, I would say, in some, in some contexts. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I would, I, I'd like to mention is um, also in the Hindu tradition, um, there are certain uh, devotional traditions, quite, quite prominent, quite mainstream devotional traditions, in which it's understood that there's only one male in the universe, and that's God. Of course, there are also Hindu traditions in which God is feminine, <laughs> emphatically uh, the goddess, but, but there is this notion that, that God is male, and all souls are female in relation to God, and therefore devotees often assume feminine roles, feminine voices, feminine occasionally feminine dress uh, in worshiping God. And, and this is an old tradition, long-standing tradition, which, of course, the Victorians thought was perverse and, and you know, yeah. uh, against nature and so on. Yeah, yeah. Well, would you imagine that uh, you mentioned Bangladesh and, and uh, was it Nepal, who have also uh, had this sort of third gender uh, ratification in a way. Would you expect that this will be something that will move all across the globe? I mean, I haven't heard any public discussion in this, in this country about um, national level third gender declarations. Would you expect that such things will happen? Um, I think, I guess it might because uh, even in some Western countries, I think, or like more Anglophone um, countries like New Zealand, I think there you do have options for declaring gender neutrality if not a separate gender in identification. And this, is, this has been kind of, I think in Australia also there's been a judgment which tries to do some, something similar. So this has been happening in other countries as well. I think ideally though finally uh, in some ways, depending on what is the context, gender identity should not be such a basic marker of social dif differentiation. This is not to say that it's not important. For many people it's personally important, but like, it shouldn't be such an important marker, say, on a whole host of identifications where it might not be that relevant because that creates a whole lot of problems, you know, and you just end up like expanding this bureaucracy around gender, which mm -hmm. in some ways is needless. So in certain cases, of course, in say med medical contexts, it might be relevant. You know, in some uh, contexts like affirmative action, it might be relevant because people who are assigned female or, you know, who are transgender or whatever, might experience greater discrimination and need, mm -hmm. th there needs to be redress specifically catered for those people. But apart from such contexts, I think there are a lot of co social contexts in which gendered identity need not be that relevant or that basic to social identification. Mm -hmm. And um, 
in that ways, you know, that might just facilitate just more easy and fluid identifications, whichever yeah. everyone wants to identify or not identify, you know. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, thank you all. This has been really uh, very, very interesting to me, and I and I thank you all for joining uh, joining us. Katie Mborek is next to me here. Annie Dutta uh, next to her, and Philip Lackendorf at the end. Thank you so much, and um, I thank all of you for coming, being with us this afternoon. And uh, please join us here at Film Scene uh, in January. Our next program after uh, the new year will be on January twentieth, and the topic is food for thought. And uh, we hope you can join us for that. Find these World Canvas programs on UITV, on YouTube, and on iTunes, and the International Programs website, international.uiowa.edu. Um, so I'm Joan Kerr. Uh, thank you very much for being here this afternoon, and we'll see you next time. Good night.